Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Francis Gilles. He's a specialist on security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean, and an associate senior researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. From 1981 to 1995, he was a North Africa correspondent for the Financial Times and has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Le Monde, El Pais, and I'm pleased to say he's a regular contributor to the Arab Digest newsletter and podcasts. Today, our focus is on the opportunities Putin's war in Ukraine is creating for Tunisia, Algeria, and Italy. Francis, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, a quick look at a map of the Mediterranean shows that, aside from the Straits of Gibraltar, the closest point of contact between North Africa and Europe is between Tunisia and Sicily, reminding us how important geography is in the energy and communication sector. Can you tell our listeners how that short distance between Italy and Tunisia is being utilized? Well, first of all, there is the first ever underwater gas pipeline in the world, which was commissioned in 1983 and built by the Italians, which carries today 20 billion or 21 billion cubic meters of gas from Algeria to Italy every year, an amount which will be increased to 30 billion cubic meters by later next year. There are also four uh, internet lines linking Europe with Africa, the last of which was commissioned, I think, in 2013. And in the future, if all goes well, um, if the plans between Italy and Algeria particularly progress on energy, there will be cables carrying uh, green electricity, and there will also be a line carrying grey and green hydrogen. So that uh, distance between northern Tunisia and Sicily, roughly 150 kilometers, becomes absolutely key to communications between Europe and North Africa and Africa. The shorter the distance, the, um, the better the outcome in terms of expenditure and getting these uh, various lines uh, running. Yes, well, the, as I say, the internet lines have been working for years. The gas line has functioned since 1983 without any interruption. Gas has flowed and the throughput could be increased by building uh, new compressor stations at either end of the uh, of the line. Mm. Now, in a recent study, you wrote about the three neighbors of Tunisia, Algeria to the west, Libya to the east, and Italy, just across the Mediterranean. Can we begin with Algeria and relations between the Tunisians and the Algerians, particularly in the field of energy, but, but otherwise as well? Well, the uh, Algerians have played a key role in ensuring the security of Tunisia since the uh, change in 2011, the fall of Bin Ali, because they have better equipped troops. They had a lot of experience with counterinsurgency due to their civil war in the 1990s. And therefore, they, they for them, Tunisia is an absolute buffer between them and Libya. And uh, they have ensured that Tunisia gets all the equipment it needs. The troops cooperate extremely well at every level from ordinary soldiers to officers uh, that I've discussed with various Tunisian officers. Um, the Algerians have also given or lent money at crucial moments to Tunisia. And it appears, though, it's not confirmed that Italy and, and Algeria might have granted Tunisia 
a very important loan uh, to tide it through its current difficulties, though that is not confirmed officially. Meanwhile, the Algerians will be selling gas to Tunisia over and above the gas fee Tunisia gets from the transit of Algerian gas to Italy. They will be selling gas to Algeria at a 20% discount from market prices. So yes, the Algerians are helping a lot, and uh, it is the nature of geography that it should be thus, and it is vital for Tunisia. And, and, and Libya, I, w- I was in Tunisia and Libya with the BBC just before Gaddafi fell, and the refugee camps in Tunisia were effectively staging grounds in the battle to bring down Gaddafi. Has that fact been useful to Tunisia, or is it the case that Libya is in such a mess that the Tunisians will need to tread very carefully? Well, the Tunisians were forced by NATO, NATO pressure, to allow Western shipments of weapons through the southern port of Zazis to help those who were trying to topple Gaddafi in 2011. Uh, The Tunisians couldn't say no, but that means they are party to the conflict in a minor way, maybe. It's also vital for southern Tunisia because for generations, Libya has provided jobs for people in a poorer region in southern Tunisia. So if and when the reconstruction of Libya occurs, it'll be absolutely fundamental for the Tunisian economy, for Tunisian growth, for Tunisian jobs. We don't know when that'll come, but it'll probably come one day. And it will be very, very important, not just in stabilizing Tunisia's southern frontier, but in uh, providing jobs and money for Tunisia. Let's turn to Italy now, Francis, and you write about a a Tunis-Rome axis, one that's been accelerated by Putin's war in Ukraine. How is that axis developing and what are its key components? Well, uh, I think basically one has to look at Italy as a country which in the past, in the 1980s, pursued an active policy towards the southern Mediterranean, which was very distinct from that of France and that of the United States, in particular Italy strongly supported the reforms launched in Algeria in 1989, which failed in 1992, which there was not the case of France or other European countries or the European Union. So um, Italy has had a distinct policy. And furthermore, it is the founder of ENI, the Italian national oil company, Enrico Mattei, who advised the Algerian government, the provisionary government of the Republic of Algeria in the run-up to independence, at a time when General de Gaulle was trying to detach the Sahara where oil and gas had just been found from the nascent country. So the links of gas, of politics and trust between Italy and Algeria run very uh, deep. Obviously, Italy has a fundamental interest in the stability of Tunisia, like of Libya, because it's a question of uh, immigrants. And also, it's worth remembering that during the French colonial period from 1881 to 1956, more Italians emigrated to Tunisia than French people. So uh, there are strong links. Now, Italy is more and more playing the role of hub for the gas hub for the Mediterranean. Why? One, it has a pipeline coming from Algeria. Secondly, it has a pipeline coming from Libya. Maybe not much gas travels through that pipeline at the moment, but it's there. It's built, it's amortized. Thirdly, there is a pipeline which links southern Italy to Azerbaijan via Turkey and Greece, which is already sending gas. 
Um, fourthly, there is a liquefied natural gas coming from Egypt. And fifthly, it appears there will be gas from Israel uh, coming into being landed and being uh, regasified in uh, special uh, ships in southern Italy very shortly. So Italy has emerged, uh, this is over the years, but it's been accelerated by its cutback of supplies from Russia, which was a very important supplier. Its role as the, the place where all the gas in the Mediterranean or the great majority of gas in the Mediterranean and Azerbaijan for the, comes into Europe. So to that extent, Italy is becoming much more strategically important in terms of energy than it ever was before. And uh, so this changes the position. The second point is that Italy, vis-a-vis -vis Algeria in particular, Italy has a very well-developed oil and gas industry. It invented the technology of underwater pipelines for gas. It can compete with any country in the world, including probably America, in terms of LNG plants, in terms of uh, refineries, all this. Italy has engineers and companies which can rival the best in the world. So to that extent, for Algeria, this is, they know it, they're comfortable, they've been cooperating with the Italians for 60 years, so that's very important. Um, another, there are other points which are of interest. One, Italy has in the depleted uh, gas uh, fields of the Po Valley in the north, an ideal area in which to stock gas. And the European Commission has been very keen to increase the capacity to stock gas in Europe ahead of next winter. So the Po Valley is a natural, doesn't require any investment. Uh, there's a final point is that um, the Germans are putting out feelers to the Algerians about gas, about hydrogen, about green energy. The Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs of, Algeria, of uh, Germany, sorry, was in Algiers the other day. So if that happens, we will find German companies moving. They're already well present in Algeria, but they will move in more. And the Germans will probably work with the Italians. So that's not signed and sealed yet, but there are many pointers in that direction. All this means that Italy is playing a much more important role. Um, last point, uh, last year the French and the Italians signed the Quirinal Treaty by the name of the presidential palace in Rome. It seems to me that this treaty in a way uh, was saying that the French concede to the Italians a much greater role in the Mediterranean because the French having supported the warlord of Eastern Libya, Haftar, much to the fury of Italy, they're now, in a sense, saying to Italy, you have a greater role. And bear in mind that when Draghi visited Algiers a few months ago, uh, he specifically said to the Algerians, we would like to cooperate with you in Mali and Chad uh, to ensure the security of southern Libya. So we have a kind of uh, alternative strategy to the one being led by the French, which is slowly being put into place. Then you add to that that um, Recep Erdogan, Mr. Draghi and President Tebun in Algeria see eye to eye on Libya. They back the United Nations back government. They will have no truck with Haftar. And there again, that doesn't mean to say that point of view 
has or will necessarily prevail nonetheless. It is a very interesting situation. So for all these many reasons, Italy finds itself in a, in a, in a maybe not in the driving seat, but in a much, much more powerful position today than it did a year or two back. In but let me, let, let me bring you back to the, the Tunis-Rome axis. How does this help Tunisia? Tunisia is going through a complicated crisis where the president will submit to referendum, I think it's next month, text for a new constitution, which re-presidentializes Tunisia. In other words, we leave the hybrid parliamentary presidential system we've had since 2015, and we revert to a presidential system. It doesn't interest many Tunisians who are giving him carte blanche, but the criticism from Europe and the European Commission is very high. And I am quite struck by the fact that the European Commission is prepared uh, and some European countries to, to, to criticize Tunisia so bluntly when they wouldn't dare say the thing, th same things about the leader of Egypt or Saudi Arabia, particularly the leader of Egypt, let alone the leaders of Algeria or Morocco, who are infinitely more autocratic than Mr. Kais Sayed. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what the EU is up to. I sometimes get the impression that it's always easier to preach to the weaker rather than to the stronger, because as I say, they wouldn't dare speak about Egypt, where the repression of human, human rights is a disaster compared to Tunis. And Tunis is a reorganization of the powers that be. And as soon as a few dozen magistrates get removed who are suspected of corruption in Tunis, Everybody starts jumping up and down in Brussels, shouting, forgetting that the, ma the magistrate's core in Tunis has been infiltrated by the Islamists, that part of it is very corrupt. We're in a complicated situation. You know, Tunisia is going through difficult times. Uh, it has not come to an agreement with the IMF. It has not come to an agreement with Brussels is lending money, but not the IMF. The negotiations are stalling. So if this information, which I said, has to be confirmed that Italy and Algeria have agreed to grant Tunisia quite a big loan, that would be very interesting indeed. So in effect, then Italy is taking a stand separate from Brussels on this issue. Well, I mean, yes, but then France has often taken the stance different from Brussels on a number of issues in North Africa. And uh, we well know that the, uh, the uh, Joseph Borrell in Brussels, in charge of foreign uh, affairs portfolio, will never do anything to uh, cross French interests in North Africa. That's been obvious ever since he was appointed. So the fact that individual countries are playing individual partitions is nothing new. Uh, what is relatively new is that Italy is emerging with what seems to me a very coherent and forward-looking strategy to take account of all the changes which are going on in the world uh, before and after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And, and one that you feel will, will assist at Tunisia. But let me ask you this. You mentioned Germany. Uh, other European countries with, with suddenly awakened interest in North Africa, thanks to Putin's war. Is this simply a, a neo-colonial replay or is there something fresh going on here? Well, I mean, nothing can be a neo-colonial replay because today you cannot treat countries. You can see the reactions of Kais Sayed and the Tunisian populations to uh, when the European Union's uh, 
criticize them. The average Tunisian is just extremely rude and can't stand it, even though they're in a position of weakness. Algeria is a major military power. It's non-aligned. And uh, we're getting oil and gas companies rushing to Algiers to speak to the to the Algerians to pass message on to the Russians. We have all kinds of visits of Americans, of Russians, of Europeans to Algiers. So the opinion of Algiers, you just have to take into account whether you like it or not. So I don't think we're into a replay of neocolonialism. The Italians were very quick off the mark to look for new gas, not just in Algeria, in Egypt, Israel, but also in Mozambique. Eni is a company which has done a lot of very good exploration in recent years. So the Italians were very quick off the mark. The Germans are slower, partly because they don't know Algeria politically so well. They have their doubts as to whether Algeria can up its game on gas. They've also had le just less relations with Algeria. And I think also they're very minded, which I could well understand, not to cross the French, who view Algeria still as, in a sense, part of their sphere of influence. But in all this region, China is gaining ground. Turkey is gaining ground. Uh, the United Arab Emirates are intervening more and more. Israel is intervening in Morocco. So. Um, it's not that everything is up for grabs, but there are far more players, important players, than there were five or ten years ago. You argue in your paper, which is titled A Winning Tunisian Strategy in the Face of Upheavals in the Mediterranean, that Tunisia has some good cards to play. What are those cards, Francis? Well, Tunisia is going through difficult times, but Tunisia, for all the problems of the last 11 years since the fall of Bin Ali, there has been very little violence in Tunisia. Uh, there's very little torture. There's mal maltreatment by the police, but there's very little torture. Tunisia remains uh, much more respectful of human rights, whatever the European Commission may think about Kais Sayed, than any other Arab country. And this corresponds, I think, to the DNA of the Tunisians and the president, who's a law professor. Let's not forget, he's not a king or a dictator or a military man. Huh? He's a law professor. So that shapes your mind in a way. You know, violence is not the means by which he's going to survive. Tunisia has a strong middle class, though the middle class is badly affected by the current crisis. It has an educated population. However many, however, uh, many young Tunisians who are educated may be leaving in despair, Tunisia has a broad, broadly well-educated population. It's also got traditions of trade, of openness to foreigners, vide the number of tourists who go to Tunisia, uh, look at the pilgrimage to the Jewish synagogue in Gerba, La Griba, which takes place any day now. Uh, where people come from all over the world and the Muslims of Gerba turn out to greet the Jews. I mean, Tunisia is its own self. It's a proud country. It may be going through very difficult times, but it's got a very clear identity. The Tunisian people know who they are, however much they may disagree about amongst each other or whatever the social divisions may be, the Tunisians know who they are. And uh, Tunisia, in its roughly in its present frontiers, has been there for 2,500 years. You know, they're Phoenicians, they're traders, they're, they're talkers, they're, they're not fighters in the sense of, uh, you know, and the army in Tunisia is, 
plays a strictly constitutional role. Many of the officers are educated in, uh, in America. Uh, they are strictly outside politics. Senior military officers do not have a stake in the economy, as is the case in Algeria, in, um, in Egypt, uh, in Morocco. Uh, so the Tunisian army is really quite an exception in the Arab world. And the role of the Tunisian army ever since independence in 1956 has been to guarantee the perennity of the state. And they are playing that role and sticking to the rules very, very much. Indeed. Uh, but a skeptic, Francis, will point to a recent report that the army refused to do uh, Kai Syed's bidding and blockade the offices of the Trades Union Council. How secure is he and therefore how likely that he could make the necessary steps to achieve the strategy that you're, you're talking about? Well, I, I mean, I'm sure there, there are tensions, but I don't see the Tunisian army staging a coup. Uh, just for me, it seems very, very unlikely. Sure, the president may do things which the maybe some officers, I don't know, because, you know, you must remember the Tunisian army is deaf mute. They do not speak. And this has been an old tradition. It's Bourguiba who didn't want a powerful army. Unfortunately, he created a powerful police with the results we know since uh, Ben Ali came from the police rather than the army. Nonetheless, uh, the army is there. It has its traditions. It's a very well-educated corps of officers too. So whether they measure all the threats and the challenges Tunisia is up to, I suspect they have a pretty good uh, understanding of the threats. It's a difficult role to play, but they do not talk. Um, you know, what the French called la grande muette, the, the man who doesn't speak. So to go and speculate about the army, I certainly wouldn't. I would just note that historically, it's always been very careful to avoid meddling in politics. Now, finally, Francis, uh, in a recent article you wrote for us at Arab Digest, you questioned whether the Algerian military, which, as you pointed out, has a very strong role in the economy, uh, particularly the energy sector in Algeria, uh, does it have the suppleness to realize the opportunities that the Ukraine war presents? And if it doesn't, is it likely that the only real winner in the triumvirate of Italy, Algeria, and Tunisia will be Italy? Well, I wouldn't say the army has a big role in the energy or the economy. What I would say is that the army does not seem to fully appreciate that it has to reorganize the uh, way the economy is run to give the private sector, where there's some very clever people, but they're constrained by extraordinarily complicated bureaucratic rules. It needs to give these people more breathing space, which means a more liberal way of running the economy with rules. The economy has always been a command economy, in part because the army wants to retain control. So indeed, one of the questions is, does the army understand or is it willing to change the way Algeria is run to some degree, not become a full democracy? I don't think that'll ever happen in our lifetime. Uh, when it comes to the energy sector, the problem there has been that it, from 2000 to 2020 was very badly mismanaged because Bouteflika appointed appalling people, corrupt, and they really uh, did a lot of damage to the oil company. 
That said, Sonatrack is a company of 200,000 people. It's, I think it's the biggest one in Africa. It has many talented engineers and there is no reason they couldn't regain the ground loss. They edicted a law two and a half years ago, but it's taken two years to, to really work because of COVID, which grants foreign companies much better conditions than they'd had in the 15 years before. So the challenge for Algerian energy is to produce a stable managerial environment, a stable regulatory environment. To that extent, the presence of the Italians and a greater role for the Germans could help because the Algerians respect the Germans with whom they don't have a political past and they respect the Italians. But then that's the great unknown. Will Algeria, Algeria will certainly be able to develop its oil and gas resources, but to what extent it can do it? And that will depend on also on other games because the recent spat between Spain and Algeria is essentially uh, due to a certain number of Spanish missteps. Uh, the Israelis are very active in Morocco, and the Moroccans seem to think that closely allying with Israel is going to help their cause in the Western Sahara. Maybe it will in the immediate future, but by introducing Israel to a greater role in the region, you're really uh, you're lighting up fires, and the Algerians will respond if if the fires are lit. So I think it's a very um, you know it's it's a very complex game going on right across the region. And uh, Algeria is a country where, although many people would like far more say in the affairs of the country, as we saw from the Hirak demonstrations three years ago, when it comes to threats, such as the one issued by the Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs in Rabat in August last year, you know, expressing concern about uh, Algeria's links with Iran, if the Israelis start playing that game, it may suit the Moroccan or think the Moroccans may think it suits them, but the Algerians will react. And the Algerians are not without friends because it's not just Mr. Lavrov who visits Algiers, it's Anthony Blinken uh, recently uh, because they're going to be maneuvers, um, you know, uh, between Morocco and NATO called Desert Lion. A senior American NATO officer flew to Algiers to explain exactly what was going to happen to make quite sure with his Algerian counterparts that Algeria would not view this as a menace. So Algeria is not in one camp or the other, even if it buys most of its weapons in Russia. It is being courted. And as I said, the links of Algeria with France may be complicated, but they're strong. The links with Germany, the links with Italy, uh, the links with the United States. So when one speaks of Algeria being so close to the Russians and maybe open the base of Mersil Kibir to the Russian fleet, I think one has to remind oneself that, remember, the links with America are strong. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and you see, too, that Tunisia uh, could benefit uh, if indeed the Algerians get their act together, so to speak, and, and work with the Italians, that Tunisia would be a winner in, in all of this. Well, it's not just Tunisia, it could also be Libya, because what we have, as I say, if the day will come when one has to rebuild Libya, Libya is a former Italian colony. The, the Italians have great interests in Libya. They have, um, you know, so exactly like France does in Algeria. But rebuilding Tripoli is going to take a huge effort. The Italian companies, many of whom are small and medium-sized companies, Algerians, 
Tunisians who have a lot of good, very small, medium-sized companies, all these people together could rebuild Libya. So I know it sounds a bit sort of uh, over the top to say these things today, but an alliance to rebuild, you know, to improve industrial output, to invest more in, in Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, Italy, it all goes together. And of course, it implies more European countries than Italy. But in this case, it is a very, I wouldn't call it an axis between Italy and Tunis. I would say simply relations have developed so much in the last six months because the, in, a, when, in a sense, the stars are aligned. The, the mutual interests of Italy, Algeria and Tunisia coincide and they coincide with Libya. So this is a fact in the game and added to which, as I say, the Turks and the Italians and the Algerians agree on Libya. Now, we are in a game now, a multipolar game, where God knows what happens tomorrow. Nonetheless, you are seeing there, I think, the beginning of the emergence of what could be, I wouldn't call it a regional block. I would call it simply a nexus of interests and alliances, which could provide more jobs, more investment, and more stability, not least in the question of immigration to Europe. And that, those agreements, as I said, when the Italians went to Algiers a few months ago, Mali was discussed. The leader of Chad, who is very close to the Americans, was in Algiers the other day, unheard of in years. So where all kinds of things are going on, and keeping one's eye on all these balls is not easy. But in this case, they seem to be sort of lining up, you know, in a, in a rather logical way. Well, very interesting. And, uh, and I know you'll keep an eye on that, on that lineup. And, and I thank you again, Francis, for talking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Francis Gilles, an associate senior researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. We welcome your comments. It's been two years since we launched, and in that time, the podcasts have been listened to more than 75,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Herb Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Francis. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.